Good morning. My name is Taylor Sutton. I'm the high school director here. And it looks like most of our young ones have departed. But in case you didn't get the uh, hint, kids and middle school students are now dismissed to your classes. The rest of us, let's turn to the book of Jude. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, and we continue our series this morning, picking up in verse 5. So would you please follow along as I read Jude 5 to 16. Now, I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked In the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is God's Word. Will you join me in prayer? God, we receive this Word from you, heavy and somber though it is, 
And we pray that you would help us in these moments as we look at it more closely and consider it together. Would you help us to be open to you, open to what you have spoken, open to who you are, open to your transforming work. And we pray that you would do that transforming work, not only after this time is concluded, but during this time. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. So this is the second installment of a four-part series on the book of Jude. And we saw last week in verses 3 and 4, really the, the summary statement for this whole letter. Verses 3 and 4, in summary, say, the gospel is worth fighting for when it is threatened with distortion. But we also saw in verse 4 that the people to whom Jude was writing were somehow unaware that this distortion was happening or was threatening the gospel in their midst. And that raises the question, how do you know when it is time to fight for the gospel? How do you know when the situation calls for rising up to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? And when does the situation call for graciously, wisely letting something go because it is a secondary matter. A few weeks ago, uh, we discovered a swarm of wasps in our backyard, right in this portion of the backyard where our kids play. So I uh, went to the store for chemical reinforcements, and I doused that area with uh, what I assume is a very strong poison, uh, this foaming spray that promised to destroy these wasps and their homes. Now, I would not use that wasp and hornet spray on a housefly in my kitchen. If I took that approach, if I treated every housefly like a hornet's nest, I would turn my house into a toxic disaster. But if I treated every hornet's nest like a housefly, eventually someone is going to get hurt. So how do you know when to fight for the gospel? If we as Christians, if we treat every disagreement as if the gospel itself is at stake, we will turn our churches into smoldering ruins of conflict and bitterness. But if we proceed on our way, assuming that the gospel is never at stake in any disagreement, well, then we just might find ourselves in the same precarious and deadly situation that Jude's readers found themselves in. The gospel itself threatened with ourselves having not a clue. So what this passage does for us, what Jude does in verses 5 through 16, is he unpacks verse 4. Verse 4 is the summary statement of the problem that these people have snuck in 
They are perverting the grace of God into sensuality, and they're denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 16 now, what Jude does is he unpacks that and he defends it. He explains how he can describe the current situation like that. And as he does this, this is what we see about when to fight for the gospel. We fight for the gospel when those who claim to speak for Jesus reject his authority. That is the the message of this passage. It's time to fight for the gospel when those who claim to speak for Jesus in actuality reject his authority, his lordship. Jude makes this case in three movements, three uh, parts uh, to this passage. And in each part, what he's showing us is two things. One, these false teachers that have infiltrated this church will be judged. That is to say, they will be punished eternally by God himself. And second, Jude wants to show his recipients why. Why will they be judged? What is their true nature that makes them deserving of judgment? So we see in these three movements, which we'll look at now, three reasons why these false teachers are worthy of judgment. Number one, these false teachers will be judged because of their wicked rebellion. These false teachers will be judged because of their wicked rebellion. We see this in verses 5 through 10. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude proceeds to mention two more examples from the history of Israel, the the world of the Old Testament, and then what he does, starting in verse 8, is he then applies that to the present-day false teachers, and he says, they are like those people from the past. So, what are his three examples? Well, first, as we just read, the, the rebellious generation of Israelites who did not trust God even after he had brought them out of Egypt. Number two, verse six, he mentions the angels who fell, who rejected God. And then in verse seven, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, that ancient example of the seriousness with which God deals with sin. So he mentions these examples. Notice in verse 5, Jesus himself is the one who was active in these Old Testament examples of judgment. And then he says in verse 8, look at verse 8, yet in like manner these people also. He's saying these these teachers that have come into your church that are so, so winsome and persuasive, this is what they're really like. How? How can he say that? Look at verse 8. Here's how he backs that up. 
relying on their dreams, Jude says, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So what do we have here? Well, defiling the flesh almost certainly is referring to some kind of sexual immorality. So they are engaging in sexual immorality without repentance, without remorse. They're also rejecting authority. No doubt, Jude is thinking first and foremost of the authority of Jesus Christ, which he had mentioned in verse 4. And then the third thing he says in verse 8 is they blaspheme the glorious ones. That is probably the, the most puzzling of the three, probably referring to angels, which makes us wonder why is Jude so upset that they're slandering angels? The reason probably is that the angels were understood to have been involved in the, the giving of the law. Galatians 3, Hebrews 2 uh, mention this kind of in passing, that there was this understanding that in some way when God gave the law to Moses, the angels served some kind of mediating function in getting the law from the Lord to Moses. And so it could be, in light of the other things Jude says, that what he has in mind or what was happening with these false teachers is they were denigrating the law they were, they were finding an excuse to disobey God's instruction by saying, the law mediated by angels. We have something better than that. We have, perhaps, verse 8 says, they have visionary dreams. So they can come and, and present themselves as a, a more reliable authority on what God wants than God's own word. That is a good candidate for what Jude means by slandering the glorious ones. Another way of rejecting God's rightful authority over them. And then verse 10 says this similarly, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So verses 5 through 10 are giving us a little clearer picture of what's happening here. What's the situation? Well, at the very least, we can say that Jude is dealing with people who are encouraging Christians to sin using Christian-sounding arguments. Maybe, we don't know, maybe they were saying something like, now that the grace of God has come in Jesus, you are free to live however you want. Maybe they said something like, well, sure, God gave us very strict instructions about our sexuality in the Old Testament, but now that the new covenant has come, things are different. We don't, we don't know exactly what they were saying, but at the very minimum, we can see a kind of antinomianism at work. Antinomianism simply means being anti-law. And antinomianism is the polar opposite of legalism. So legalism says, obey God in order to be accepted by God. Antinomianism says, because you're accepted by God, disobey God as much as you want. Both legalism and antinomianism 
corrupt the gospel. The gospel says, the gospel proclaims Christ crucified as both Lord and Savior. The Christ who was killed and was raised is now both rescuer and ruler, Savior and King. He is both of those things. And the promise of the gospel is that those who trust in him receive the benefits of both of those things, Christ's reign and rule, as well as his saving rescue. You cannot separate them. The gospel is not a buffet. I'll take two helpings of Jesus as Savior, forgiving my sins, and I'll pass on the Lordship. Because what Jude is showing us and what the whole Bible shows us is that the good news actually unravels when you reject the authority of Christ. Imagine, imagine that you had a rare disease, but you were able to get in to see a world-renowned doctor whose specialty was your very affliction. And not only that, through some special program, you were able to receive treatment from this doctor free of charge. All your expenses are covered. But you decide at some point to not follow the treatment plan of this world-renowned doctor. You don't fill the prescriptions he writes for you. You opt out of the procedures he recommends. In that situation, you might proudly identify yourself as a patient of this world-renowned doctor. You might even feel real gratitude that his treatment is free, free of charge. But if you don't follow his treatment plan, it's not simply that you're being rude or you're not paying him back. You're actually refusing the care and the healing that the doctor offers. That's what happens if you try to somehow receive Jesus as Savior, as forgiver, as justifier, and and try at the same time to reject His lordship and authority and rule over every part of your life. Think about it this way. One of the ways Jesus rescues you is by blessing you with His gracious reign. Jesus did not come to drop from heaven a pallet of forgiveness only to leave you enslaved to your sins and addictions and destructive tendencies. That would not be good news. Jesus comes to save us from sin's penalty and sin's destructive power in our lives. The gospel unravels when you reject the authority of Christ. And Jude is going toe-to-toe with these teachers because that's exactly what they're doing. They are trying to separate 
the salvation of Christ from the authority of Christ, and it does not work. So that's the first section. Verses 5 through 10, we see that the false teachers will be judged for their wicked rebellion. Next, the false teachers will be judged for their treacherous selfishness. We see this in verses 11 through 13. The false teachers will be judged for their treacherous selfishness. Look at verse 11. Woe to them. That is a declaration, a pronouncement of judgment. Jude is saying, God will most certainly judge and punish these teachers. Why? Well, once again, he draws from the world of the Old Testament. Look at verse 11. Because they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he's tying them very closely to these ancient events, each of which in different ways involves an individual doing harm to someone else. Think about Cain. Cain killed his own brother out of jealousy and spite. Balaam plotted the seduction of the children of Israel for money, even after he had blessed them at God's superintending. And then Korah was a Levite who tried to stir up a kind of insurrection against Moses and Aaron. So how are they like these three people? How are they like these treacherous, self-serving individuals? Well, he says in verse 12, these, referring to these men, these people, these teachers, verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. What's he talking about there? The love feast uh, was really the, the gathering of the church. It involved a meal, a feast, part of which was what we know now as the Lord's Supper. And this feast involved uh, sharing and teaching as well. So whether or not this was the weekly Sunday gathering of the church or perhaps a more uh, special gathering, regardless, this was a significant moment of fellowship around the Lord's table with teaching and instruction. And Jude says, these guys are present at your church family gatherings as what? Hidden reefs. Outcroppings of rock that sit just below the surface, ready to destroy any ship that comes too close. So their presence, probably again, as teachers at these gatherings, was a danger, at this point, a danger that was hidden. A danger that the the recipients of this letter did not fully appreciate. And then Jude proceeds to stack up 
uh, metaphors here in 12 and 13. Look at these verses with me. They're shepherds feeding themselves, so-called pastors pastoring for their own gain. They're clouds and trees promising benefit but delivering none. And then verse 13 says, what they do deliver is bad. They churn up their own shame, their own shameful deeds, and their own error into which, no doubt, they seek to lead others. So they will be judged, verses 11 through 13 say, because of their treacherous selfishness. They are a threat to the body of Christ, and the motivation for their threat is their own gain. It's interesting that that Jude does not refute their arguments in any kind of logical way. What he's doing instead is he's exposing them for who they really are. And I think this shows us something important about how we prepare to respond rightly to false teaching. It's not enough simply to know the right doctrine or to know the right answer. We need to love the right answer and treasure the right doctrine. Listen to what uh, Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, says about this paragraph. He writes, Many of Jude's readers, no doubt, found the false teachers impressive and persuasive. And part of Jude's task must be to shift their whole imaginative perception of the false teachers and show the false teachers in a wholly different light. So we want to not only think rightly, not only sort of begrudgingly tolerate what God has said, but to love what God has said, to rejoice in the truth that He has revealed. So we we do this when we view sin not as a, a forbidden pleasure, but as poison to our souls. We, we feel rightly when we view the lordship of Christ not as a burden, but as true freedom. These false teachers will be judged because of their treacherous, harmful, dangerous selfishness. Let's move on now to the third movement of Jude's argument. This is verses 14 through 16. In this last part of of our text, Jude shows that these false teachers will be judged because of their irreverent words. These false teachers will be judged for their irreverent words. The pattern that we've seen so far continues. He reaches back into the world of ancient Israel, of the world of the Old Testament, and applies that to his present-day opponents. However, here, things are a little bit different, because look at verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, now, so far, so good. Enoch is in the Bible, the book of Genesis. But what follows is actually quoted from a book that is not in the Old Testament, a book called First Enoch, a book that no Jewish or Christian group 
has ever considered a holy scripture. But Jude quotes it and says, Enoch prophesied saying, look at verse 14, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment. And he continues on. And the quote ends at the end of verse 15. So what is going on here? Why, why would Jude quote a book that was not scripture and treat it as a valid prophecy? Well, in short, we can basically say this, that Jude never calls First Enoch Scripture. He doesn't treat it exactly the way we would uh, expect a New Testament writer to refer to Scripture. We see phrases in the New Testament when the Old Testament is being quoted, like, thus says the Lord, Scripture says, it is written. It's significant, I think, that Jude doesn't use any of those typical formulas to introduce this. So he's not claiming that first Enoch is Scripture. But on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that he does regard at least these words as a valid, God-inspired prophecy. And it's helpful to remember that the Bible has a category for true prophecy that nonetheless does not generate new Scripture. Paul talked about prophets in the church in 1 Corinthians. We see prophets in the book of Acts making uh, statements. And so not every prophecy, by definition, creates Scripture. At any rate, the argument that Jude is making from 1 Enoch is pretty straightforward. The, the, The quotation that he cites says, God is coming to judge the wicked deeds and the shameful words of the ungodly. And then verse 16, Jude applies that to his opponents and says, well, these men are wicked and ungodly. And in particular, he focuses on verse 16, on their words. Look at verse 16. These are grumblers, perhaps referring to their grumbling in particular against God's moral instruction. They're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters. Again, probably not boasting just in general, but boasting in the sense of presuming to speak for God, presuming to know better than God what should be done. And then finally, they, are, they show favoritism to gain advantage, likely referring to the way that they told people what they wanted to hear so that they could maintain a comfortable living. This reminds us once again, we've seen this already, but I think this becomes even clearer in verse 16. Jude is talking about teachers, people who claim to speak for Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 22. We'll look at this next week. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt referring to those who are in danger of being swept away by these false teachers. So so don't miss the contrast. Jude thunders mercilessly against the teachers, and he says, deal very gently with those who are being misled by the teachers. It's one thing to set out on a road to hell It's another to persuasively entice other people to come with you and to do it in Jesus' name. That's what these men were doing. 
So when we step back and we think about these three movements, these three arguments about why these teachers are worthy of judgment and will most certainly be judged, we see these three things, that they will be judged because of their wicked rebellion, their treacherous selfishness, and their irreverent words. The gospel unravels when you reject the authority of Christ. It's no longer the gospel. And so Jude says to us, it's time to fight for the gospel when people who claim to speak for Jesus reject his authority. Now, there are other reasons why we might contend for the gospel, why we might stand our ground and insist that someone is wrong and even damnably wrong. But this is the reason Jude gives us, because this is the crisis Jude was facing. And so it would do us well to consider how we might be ready to contend against this particular species of gospel distortion. How might we be prepared and act wisely and courageously when the gospel is distorted in this way, when people who claim to speak for Jesus reject the authority of Jesus? Well, we've already seen a few things. Let me just add a few more. Number one, recognize that it is possible to functionally deny the authority of Christ while doctrinally affirming it. We have to realize that it can be done, that you can functionally reject and deny that Jesus is Lord while doctrinally affirming the words or the concept, Jesus is Lord. These men, from everything we can tell, did not reject the lordship of Jesus by denying his incarnation, denying his divine nature. By all appearances, they did not deny the resurrection. If they had done any of those things, almost certainly Jude would have addressed that and thundered against that. So what seems to have been happening here is you have teachers who can check off all the right boxes doctrinally on the person and the work of Christ at a theoretical, theological level, and yet when they call people to a certain way of living, they have found a way to get around the functional, live lordship of Christ. We see this in our own day, do we not? We see followers of Jesus, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, saying, yes, Jesus is Lord, but you don't have to listen to what he says about sexuality. It wasn't that long ago in our own country that some of the staunchest defenders of racial segregation were Bible-believing Christians who used the Bible to defend legalized white supremacy. 
It is possible to doctrinally affirm that Jesus is Lord and functionally, utterly deny it. So we need to realize that as we think about our own lives and about those that would seek to speak for Jesus or influence our faith. Number two, the intensity of the fight should match the clarity of the command being broken. The intensity of our fight for the gospel needs to be proportionate to the clarity of the command being broken. Whatever they were teaching, and it it seems like it's centered on uh, sexual ethics primarily, but whatever they were teaching was breaking a clear, unambiguous command of God. We have other examples, though, in the New Testament, like Romans 14, where you have disagreements on ethical issues that are not so clear. The the challenge is we have a lot of ethical decisions that do not have a clear, thus says the Lord, command to guide our steps. Now, that doesn't mean we form no conviction. We, we do. We, we form all kinds of convictions based on our best attempts at scriptural, theological reasoning, and we must do that. But the point that I'm making here is the farther removed you are from a clear, unambiguous command of scripture, the, the softer, more gentle, more cautious any contending needs to be. Number three, the focus of our fight needs to be our own churches and our own relationships with Christians. I think it's easy in the world we live in today when we hear Jude 3, contend for the faith, fight for the gospel, our mind sort of immediately rushes to the public square. And and there's a place for representing Jesus well in the public square. But let's not miss the fact that that's not what Jude is talking about. Now, don't miss this. The world that Jude lived in was a mess. But Jude is concerned with the purity of the church. And, don't miss this, he was concerned in this case with the purity of a particular local church or perhaps a group of churches. Here's, here's the point I'm making. If your old college friend is saying crazy things on Facebook, you are not necessarily responsible to respond to that. Maybe you are. Maybe the nature of your relationship and the nature of what's being said is such that that your conscience says, I need to say something. But we ought not take the book of Jude and, and become the kind of people who are always everywhere picking a fight with everyone. We have domains of responsibility. Uh, the internet is none of our domains of responsibility. The local church is, if you are 
a member of a local church. So you might not have a responsibility to persuade someone of of your opinion about the latest political issue coming out of Washington, D.C., but if someone in your small group is drifting from Christ, you have a responsibility there. So the focus of our gospel contending needs to be in our churches and in our relationships with other believers. Fourth, we need to embrace the whole Christ. We need to embrace all of who Jesus is. Let's, let's be honest. The picture of Jesus in this passage is a severe one. And that's because part of who Jesus is is severe. We rightly rejoice in the gentleness of Christ. We are right to celebrate the incredible fact that Jesus has made us his friends if we trust in him. But we have to remember who it is who has befriended us. We have to remember that Jesus is gentle toward us, not from a place of weakness. Jesus is gentle with us the way that a lion is gentle with its cubs. And if we are going to not merely assent to the right doctrines, but love the main doctrines, one of the things we need to do is learn to embrace all of Christ. Learn to love and treasure all of who Jesus is. On one of the last albums that Johnny Cash released, he recorded a song. It's a well-known song uh, called Personal Jesus. And if you know the song, if you've heard the original, uh, you, you can just tell by listening to it, it's not about Jesus. But Johnny Cash was moved by this song, and he recorded it uh, as a non-ironic, as he called it, gospel song. He, he viewed it as a beautiful song about the personal nature of Jesus. Here's a line. You've, you've probably heard this. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. I think we can agree with Johnny Cash that There is truth in those statements, that Jesus is personal, that he draws near to persons to have relationships with us, and he does that with a gracious and kind commitment to hear our prayers, and he does care. But here's the interesting thing. The first song on that same album was a song that Johnny Cash wrote himself. And it's also about Jesus, but it's a portrait of Jesus taken from the book of Revelation. It's called, The Man Comes Around. Let me just read you a couple lines. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. 
There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? So which is it? Personal Jesus, someone who cares, someone who hears your prayers, or is he the man who will one day come around to settle accounts with everyone? He's both. He's both, and if we hope to be at all prepared to deal with the kind of false teaching that Jude is combating, we have to love both aspects of who Jesus is. That when we pursue a friendship with Jesus, we are not pursuing a friendship with an imaginary friend who approves of everything we do no matter what. What would that be anyway? When we pursue a friendship with Jesus, we are pursuing a friendship with, yes, the Savior of our souls, but also the ruler of the world, the one who sits resurrected and ascended, reigning over everything until death itself is put in its place. That's the one with whom we have a relationship. And that doesn't make our relationship uh, anything less. It makes it better. It makes it more rich and compelling. And here's the thing. This isn't the kind of Savior that people would just make up. That's such a, a common assumption in our, our Western world that God is just one big exercise in uh, wish fulfillment, sort of projecting what you wish were true in order to make life bearable. Who would make up a God like this? You can't make this stuff up. And yet this is the real Jesus. This is the one who loves us, who died for us, who rose for us, who's protecting us. This is the one who is worthy of our glad submission. Let's pray. Father, we come to you only through this Jesus. Your holiness permits no other means of approach. So we come to you in all of your glory and splendor and holiness through Jesus because his sacrifice has canceled the debt our sins accrued. And we pray, Father, that you would help our hearts to love the truth. Would you help our hearts love the authority of Christ over us, to view it not as a burden, not as a way we pay you back for our salvation, but to view it as a glorious aspect of our salvation, that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we need your Spirit's work in our hearts to love these realities as we should. And it is our prayer that you would do that in our hearts.
Amen.